week of April 17th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 581, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And at 221B Baker Street, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh, geez. You know, whenever you throw in one of those English addresses, I have to look it up, then I have to Google map it, then I have to do the the whole Google Earth with the 360 and make sure that it's the right address and maybe not, you know, a south or north version of the same address on the other side of town. But I was, I was, you, I was, I was here last week. You know what 221B Baker Street oh, is. that's the, that's the Conan Doyle. That's the Sherlock Holmes. That's what it that's is. That's correct. It's the home of Sherlock Holmes. Last week we talked about HBO Max launching the Sherlockverse or the Holmesverse, or who knows what they're calling it, but all these projects for HBO Max linked to the world of Sherlock Holmes and spun off from the actual universe of the movies starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. Apparently, we could have an entire podcast on Sherlock Holmes every week because, boom, right after the episode, a big announcement about a new stage version of Sherlock Holmes unconnected to HBO Max. An original play is being written. Uh, director Rob Ashford, who's won the Tony and Olivier Award as a director, he's going to helm it. It's an original stage play about Sherlock Holmes. It's not an adaptation or one of the many, many, many earlier adaptations of The Hound of the Baskervilles or whatever that have appeared on stage. It's a brand new version that apparently goes into his childhood and what made Holmes Holmes. And I assume we'll have a mystery for him to solve. But good Lord, it never ends, does it? And again, none of this is new. People think, oh, so many sequels, so many spinoffs, so many franchises. If you wrote a book that was Ben-Hur came out, was a massive bestseller, 500 stage productions bopped up at the same time. People did Ben-Hur, you know, potholders, Ben-Hur flower, Ben-Hur everything with the author trying to like clamp down on them and suing them to stop it. There's just... And then uh, uh, an illegal Ben-Hur film was made, a 15-minute silent film, and of course, multiple versions since then. Stage productions, official ones, unofficial, you know. Anytime you have a property that's famous and popular, people will beat it to death and continue to do so for decades to come. Robin Hood, Sherlock Holmes, Ben-Hur, it doesn't matter. So it may be annoying, but it's nothing new. Well, okay, explain this to me. This is something new. You have something here in our show notes about Amy Mann and Donald Fagan. Apparently, they're making out or something like that. No, I no, no. I said, no, no, no. I said they kissed and made up. Uh, she, we wrote, reported, I think, a, a couple weeks ago about how she has a cool Instagram account. And you can see the drawings and comic book depictions of her life that she does. They're very cool. You should check it out. And in one of them, she mentioned how she was going to be on tour and opening for Steely Dan or being on the bill, if perhaps is a more appropriate way to put it. And then she wasn't. And she was kind of bummed because she absolutely loves Steely Dan. And it became a ooh, cat fight. You know, the media loves to, you know, it's a woman. So they're like, oh, and no, it turned out she said publicly it's not a big deal. But, you know, hey, uh, all is forgiven. If he will just explain to me what that song Brooklyn is about. It turns out. Donald Fagan emailed her and explained to her what the song Brooklyn was about and the origins of it. And she did a little comic book about that. It's very cool. She's clearly a fan. They've patched up any misunderstandings and blamed their assistants, of course, and all is well. So that was sweet. And I thought, you know, we had them fighting. She was amused or annoyed, I guess is the way to put it, about how that little fracas was depicted. Like it's a feud. She's like, no, you know, it just these things happen, these scheduling things or whatever. And it was a bummer to hear about, but, you know, she loves Steely Dan. And again, Mr. Fagan, she would be a great opening act. In fact, next week, we should have Donald Fagan on the show. I will book him right now for next week, Sperling. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, 
maybe Donald uh, Fagan can stand in for me because I'll be at CinemaCon. Oh. So, yeah, so there will be no show next week. Because of CinemaCon, I blame the National Association of Theater Owners. That would have been a better joke if I said I blamed NATO with how much NATO has been in the news lately. <laughs> I could have said, I blame NATO. They won't let me in. Well, listen, I, I depend on you to see a joke and veer to the left. Yes, not only veer to the left, then try and tell the joke anyway, and then explain that it was a joke. Oh, it's then, the best. And then beat that joke to death. So no show next week. That's a bummer, but blame Sperling. And, uh, but there will be a show this week. What are we going to talk about? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are delighted to see the Indian film industry leading the world back to movie going. And it's not just Bollywood, by the way. We are less delighted to see bad behavior still exists in Hollywood, but Cuba Gooding Jr. and Franklin Langella are apparently paying the piper. Thanks to one of our longtime listeners, we've got full streaming numbers this week. And who was that longtime listener? Was it Raul Burreal? That's correct. Yes, okay. Uh, and by the way, uh, speaking of streaming, that's what Inside Baseball is about this week. We'll update the latest on the battle of supremacy in video streaming. Apparently, by the way, and Michael, take note of this, okay? You, you mm -hmm. got a pen and yes. pen, pencil? Okay. I, I, do. Uh, I do. Here's the thing. Uh, originals, originals, creating hit originals, it really, really helps when you're trying to launch a streaming service. Apparently. Good to know. So, go, yeah. It probably also helps, by the way, for movie studios and television networks and just generally content. <laughs> That's why, we, that's why we don't just play the same podcast over and over again. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. And some people might think we do play the same podcast every week. We picker, we give the box office, big deal, big whoop, but it's all new and fresh. And looking at box office around the world, we have a link to Comscore in our show notes and looking at the worldwide box office and looking at the entire grosses from the last seven days really matters. Case in point, our number one film, Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. That grossed $135 million this week. It's at $193 million worldwide. If you look at the headlines, however, it's a disaster. It grossed a record low, $43 million opening weekend, much lower than the last two movies here in North America on its opening few days. However, it is doing better around the world. China is mostly shut down. They're not screening films in Ukraine or Russia because war. And that means there's less market for the movie to open up in. But in all the markets it is in, one of the trades said it is tracking slightly behind the Batman. The Batman. Now, does the Batman sound like a movie that's a flop? Yeah, I'm so sorry that uh, unfortunately that the only film that you could track behind was a massive hit. Well, I'm saying it's just, it's just, you know, it's slightly behind it, meaning in all those territories where it compares them, it's doing just as good as the Batman, which is not a flop. And so it is not doing as well as the Batman in North America. That's the number one market in the world right now. It may not get to $600 million, but that's where it needs to get. It costs about $200 million to make, but it's at $200 million. And in most of the countries where it's playing, it's doing just fine. It's doing well. This is more of an international movie. It's always played better internationally than in North America. That trend is getting even more obvious now. But it's the third of a proposed five films. And the question is, will they make parts four and five? Maybe not. Maybe they would say, you know, let's pivot to television and do the last, you know, do 10 episodes to cover the final material in the book. Maybe that's the, you know, maybe that's their idea. Say, well, 
we don't want to do it for a movie, but we want to finish the storyline. Would it be cheaper and make more sense to say, hey, let's just do 10 episodes, 10 hours for HBO Max and cover the final two plots? I don't know. Was or Fantastic just- Beasts a book? I don't think it was. No, no, it wasn't. But it's been a five-part film series. It was conceived in five parts. Obviously, each story continues the story of the one before. It's all cliffhanger. You know, there's no ending. And so you have three movies with two more to go and the story won't be concluded. And Fantastic Beasts as a franchise would be more valuable if you could wrap things up. Do you do it in a cheap two-hour movie? Do you do eight episodes online? That would be longer than the two final films. I, I you think would make. you and I should just act it out. I think that's really just give us that's the script. Great. We'll read it like like an audible book, like a, like an audio book. We could do now. You know, uh, I think in regards to whether this is a hit or not, I think Michael, it's being compared to its previous. Uh, you know, all the all the 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 Harry Potter franchise, and and of course in when you compare it to one of the most successful franchises of all time, yes, most films don't, don't live up to them, but right. this one know, isn't, this one isn't holding up compared to parts one and two of fantastic beasts, at least oh, here in North okay. America. That's the problem. And China is shut down. That's also a big problem, but that's the number one movie around the world. It did make $135 million this week. Let's not be surprised if it falls off a cliff and stalls out at $400 million. But when in a lot of territories, it's tracking slightly behind the Batman, that's not a disaster, at least in those markets. But the whole worldwide box office is what matters. And in that metric, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is doing just fine. Another $92 million this week. It's at $232 million worldwide. It will definitely triple its budget of $110 million and be great. <laughs> and then we get to the big news at the box office, as far as I'm concerned. Another big Indian film has opened up worldwide and made a lot of money. KGF Chapter 2 is a big action film from India. It grossed $71 million this week. It stars Yash as an action hero star who is rescuing hostages trapped in a mall. Uh, that's the plot line. Oh, I'm sorry. I jumped down to uh, Beast, another Indian film. I apologize. Uh, he, Yash plays an assassin, born poor, and now one of the top assassins in the world. That's the the setup for the film. It's a big action film. It cost about $13 million to make, and it's already made in its opening week $71 million worldwide. There's even more good news about this. Right below that is Beast, another Indian film. This one stars VJ, big actors who don't even need a last name, and he is rescuing hostages in a mall. That movie opened up to $26 million. Scrolling on down, we have RRR, the big Indian action flick. That has grossed $10 million this week. It's at $140 million worldwide. Without adjusting for inflation, it's the third biggest Indian film of all time. And then just off the charts that we have, the top 10, is The Kashmir Files, which is another Indian film that is making good money around the world. Here's the really cool thing about this. It's not just Indian films being seen all over the world, which is great. But KGF Chapter 2 is from the Canada region. I should have looked at the pronunciation. We've been chided on our pronunciation the last few weeks, and we appreciate any time someone writes in and says, this is the phonetic way to pronounce that word, because sometimes it's hard to track. But the Canada, I'm looking at Canada because my mom's from Canada, but it's K-A-N-N-A-D-A. That region and that language, those people, that's the culture and the industry that launched this film, KGF Chapter 2. Beast is a Tamil film. Uh, RRR is a Telugu film. And Kashmir Files is a Hindu film. Historically, the Hindu films are the Bollywood films, and then sometimes people would call movies from the Tamil region or the Telugu region Tollywood. Uh, but the point is, 
Movies from all over India are appealing to everyone in India. Of course, they're dubbed in multiple languages, but they spring from these cultures. They spring from, they have these stars in them. And people are saying, we're happy to embrace these movies. It's happening all over India and all over the world. So it's a much more vibrant industry. The news is not just from Bollywood, and we've known that for a long time, but to see four films from four different regions basically on the worldwide charts at the same time and scoring big numbers all over the world, that's very exciting. I mean, this is a wide release in North America, right? It's cool to see. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, these movies are being shown in the U.S. and, you know, a- anywhere there's the Indian diaspora, of course, like uh, England has a big uh, a big uh, population from India and, and all over the world. They're just fun action films. I have not seen RRR yet, but I want to. So that's cool news. Back to the charts. Fantastic Beast number one, Sonic the Hedgehog made 92 million, KGF part two made 71, and Beast made $26 million. Then there's another uh, Hollywood movie, The Lost City, starring Sandra Bullock. Channing Tatum and my friend Daniel Radcliffe, $20 million this week. It's at $100 million worldwide. Then Morbius is uh, still making money, $20 million this week. It's at $146 million worldwide, though I don't know anyone who liked it. Ugly, dark film. But The Batman, I'm hearing pretty good things about, and that movie made another $16 million this week. It's at $750 million worldwide, comfortably tripling its budget certainly making the case that there should be a second film starring Robert Pattinson as the noirish Batman, but it's now on HBO Max, right? It comes on HBO Max today, April 18th, 45 days after it was released. It made $10 million in the US last week, and they're like, nah, we don't want to wait another week. We just want to get it onto HBO Max right away. Not sure it's the smartest move because once you put it on HBO Max anywhere, it's going to be available on HBX everywhere and pirated everywhere. So, you're cutting out the legs from under a movie that was still making good money. $60 million isn't chump change. You could have gotten to $800 million, and that's a lot cooler than seven fifty. Then there's well, the bad yeah. guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually want to go see this movie now just to prove to these guys, you know what? People do see these movies, although they'd probably that, say, that you that see, it prove doesn't to them matter. It doesn't matter. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I haven't gotten around to it yet and I want to see it. But yeah, now I'm like, oh, should I just watch on HBO Max? I'm sure it'll be more fun on the big screen, but it is three hours long. <laughs> well, the bad guys is playing in theaters. That's the DreamWorks animated film. $13 million this week. It's at $53 million worldwide. Then one of the great success stories of the year, a great argument for platforming, for moving a movie into a wider release, for setting a movie up and letting it play out for weeks and weeks on end. I'm sure they won't be rushing this into the home. It's everything everywhere all at once. Starring Michelle Yao, the multiverse comedy action film. It made $10 million this week. It's at $19 million worldwide and has a long, long way to go. Very cool to see. Making the same amount of money as RRR, that Indian Telugu film. Then there's Ambulance, the Michael Bay film starring Jake Gyllenhaal. That made $9 million this week. It's at $40 million worldwide, just matching its budget. Certainly not seeming to get any traction anywhere it's playing. So we won't be seeing, what would be a sequel to Ambulance 2? Ambulance 2, the (laughs) the emergency car. ER. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But we will perhaps see a sequel from Uncharted. That's the Tom Holland flick. It made another $6 million this week. It's at just under $400 million. It will certainly claw its way to $400 million worldwide. It only costs $120 million to make. It's the setup for a franchise. The video game has been around since 2007. Tom Holland is a big star. I'm sure we'll be seeing another one. Uh, then right below that, we have Father Stew with Mark Wahlberg. 
That drama made about $6 million this week as it opened wider here in North America. It's at $8 million worldwide. So lots of good movies. Exciting to hear about the Indian films. And then Fantastic Beasts, if it didn't have enough trouble. China is shut down. Very few uh, theaters are open for that movie to go see. Shanghai is completely shut down. And then China said, yeah, about that modest little gay subplot in your movie. We're going to cut that out. They've cut out the gay subtext of Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. The Secret of Dumbledore is in part that he was gay and in love with you know his, his fellow friend Grindelwald uh, and that they had a romantic relationship. So they have cut out the dialogue that directly, if modestly referenced, I mean, it just says we were intimate or I loved you. That's It's not like they get explicit or do anything, you know, outre. It's a family film. But he does say I loved you and it's clear they were lovers and not just good pals the way Sperling and I are. So they cut all that out. They must have butchered this movie. They must have really taken the heart out of it. They cut out six seconds. <laughs> so there's not, a, there's not a lot. It's a lot of subtext. <laughs> so six seconds, really, you know, uh, it's a shame. They shouldn't have done it. It's, it's sad. But, you know, six seconds tells you that the movie wasn't exactly pounding that into the dirt. Though it would still probably get banned in Texas. You know, here's the thing. Uh, I wonder if someday uh, they could make a movie like Cinema Paradiso. And by the way, by the way, if I'm ruining, and we had a uh, we had somebody who who rightly said that we spoiled James Bond for them, which is probably true because we kind of mentioned the ending a couple weeks ago. Uh, I believe it was Assad Butt who said, uh, "Hey, I was I was in the middle of watching it, and <laughs> you gave me the ending." But uh, the- cut over, jump over the next five seconds if you've never seen Cinema Paradiso, which did, to be fair come out in 1989 1988 1988 yeah yeah so it's a sled yeah it's a sled um you know if i wonder if at some point there'll be like a chinese version of that where they they have all of the scenes that were cut all the kisses and all the gay context the friends and and uh, fantastic beasts and oh that would be fun uh, we'll be getting to more Chinese censorship down the road. That will be in uh, Big Deal, Big Whoop, I believe. But we it's now time for our GoFundMe section where we want to reach out and help out those CEOs in Hollywood who are hurting. The latest one today, sad news, Paramount CEO Bob Bakish, a pay cut, almost cut his pay by 50%. Last year, two years ago, he made $39 million. This year, a paltry $20 million. At least it wasn't, you know, 19. That would have been the coolest cut, but... You know, so not a complete 50% pay guy, but he only made $20 million this year. So go to our website and log in there and you'll be able to donate money to help him out. You know, if you've, if you've got the money and can do it, that would be great. How can people reach out to us, Sperling, when they want to make those donations? Well, you can write to dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. You can also follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle, and you can reach out to us there. Or you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. All of that information, by the way, is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. And if you are following us on Twitter, you're you're learning about all the latest and greatest uh, show business news because I, you know we've kind of picked up uh, where we left off several years ago and started tweeting out news uh, and our thoughts on it as 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 it happens. So almost almost live, not exactly live. Though not next week because he'll be busy at CinemaCon. Are you oh, doing no, any panels? No. Are you are you doing any panels or anything at CinemaCon? Or are you just attending and being a force behind the scenes? I am uh, covering it, so I'm not exactly on a panel. 
but uh, covering it. And, you know, generally they tend not to have journalists do a whole lot there. They'll have like maybe one journal. I think there's two journalists. Uh, Rebecca Keegan is doing a, a but question. But you also, you work in the industry as, you know, an advisor for studios and exhibitors and people, don't yes. you? So you're more than a journalist. Yes. I'm barely well, a journalist, but you're more than a journalist. And happily. I, I am, Michael, get this. I am journalist plus. That's right. <laughs> as far as I know, uh, have you ever like pawed or grabbed the breasts of somebody in public that you didn't know or kissed them or pinched them or or mauled them in any way? People you don't know in public. Have you ever done that? Uh, no. I mean, what no, kind of question is that? Of course I haven't well, done that. Just, you never know because Cuba Gooding Jr., the Oscar winning actor, we talked about him doing just that in public to numerous women in restaurants and other places. And now the Oscar winning actor has pled guilty to what's called forcible touching of a woman after roughly two dozen women came forward and were ready to testify about how he groped them, made lewd comments, pinched them, their butts, obviously, grabbed their breasts and so on. I have seen some people be like, oh, it's forcible touching, like give me a break, as if it's normal to paw at people you don't know in public. I've managed to go my whole life without doing it. You've managed to go your whole life without doing it. So should Cuba Gooding Jr. So making fun of that and having like thinking like a waitress, oh, what's the big deal? Like, no, that we watched Mad Men and said how ridiculous that era was. We've moved beyond that, people. So I found that very annoying where people are like, oh, forcible touching, please. He just, you know, grabbed their butt. It's like, no, you're not allowed to do that. He also faces a civil lawsuit from a woman who says he raped her in 2013. Everyone recognizes that as a very serious charge as well. He, of course, denies it. And then there's Frank Langella. Very similar uh, situation here in terms of how people react to this. Frank Langella Jr. was fired from a Netflix miniseries called The Fall of the House of Usher. He was like the lead character, practically, or sensual character. And they'd already filmed a number of episodes, but they have fired him and they are recasting and reshooting those scenes. One outlet said he was fired after making an inappropriate joke to a female co-star. Another described it as sexual harassment, including making inappropriate comments to a female co-star during work areas. Another described him touching her knee or leg and making jokes about it. We don't really know what happened. He's certainly not talking. Netflix isn't talking. But I can easily imagine people, oh, please, he made a lewd comment or a, a joke she didn't like and rolling their eyes and saying, no, is this what we've come to? It's like, yes, we have. Thank goodness. You're at work. Your coworker isn't supposed to be able to maul you and pinch you or make lewd comments and grab your knee. It's like, no, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> Just ask the guy from Pixar, right? <laughs> John Lasseter, you mean? Right. And, but these have been reported in the trades. This next item is not really about misconduct or social justice, but it's about how things get reported. Suddenly, there was a headline that Tandy Newton, a marvelous actress and a great talent and someone I've interviewed once and had a delightful time with, that she was fired from Magic Mike 3, the Channing Tatum film. Why? Because she and Channing Tatum argued about Will Smith and they disagreed heatedly about what happened and why. And you thought, really? What the, huh? And now, then I saw a headline saying she denied it. No, it's nothing to do with that whatsoever. And then somebody else said creative different. You're like, what's the story? What's the truth? Then finally, I see what was the source for this story? She certainly left the film, but what was the source for the fact that they had feuded over Will Smith? 
The Sun, the UK tabloid, The Sun, which is like you literally should not repeat anything that is reported by The Sun because, of course, they had nobody on the record. It was all anonymous. And it's probably all BS. As the well, yeah, I mean, it's like, said. come on, it's not the Daily Mail. I mean, if it was in the Daily Mail, then, of course, you could repeat. <laughs> oh, wait. Never right. Mind. That's really bad, too. Yes. The Sun and the Daily Mail. Not good. So, yes, British tabloids in general. I'm a British British person. I was born in Bermuda. Do not treat anything in there as anything worth reporting on. There's a new Indiana Jones movie and Harry Styles is the lead. It's like, if it's from the Daily Mail or the Sun, ignore it. Do not report on it. Uh, very frustrating to me. Uh, you know, don't get me started on those that type of journalism. The number of times I've actually, in the past week even, had people repeat to me things like, oh my God, did you hear? You know, And it's usually... Things uh, you could just tell, like, okay, so you're a Trumper. <laughs> so I get it. You're a Trumper. Oh, uh, you got political. You got political. Well, no, no, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, so, and then you go and you kind of look it up because you're like, oh, did, did that actually happen? And you look right. it up and you're and like, you waste oh, your time. it was in the New York Post, the Washington Times, not the Washington Post, the Washington Times, and it was on Fox News. And sometimes <laughs> it's not even on Fox News. Like, even Fox is like, yeah, we're not going to touch that one. Uh, well, I mean, what makes me frustrated? Repeated. What makes me frustrated is when I want to cover the streaming numbers and I can't do it. And normally, this is the section where we would do it. And this week, I did not see again any story in the trades. However, Raul Burrell stepped up to the plate and said, "Dude, you idiot! You can look at it for free on Nielsen's website. Here's the link. <laughs> save it and use it." <laughs> so that's awesome. But we will save those streaming numbers for Inside Baseball when we get to that because uh, I thought it was a very big deal that he shared that with us. I'm very excited that he shared that with us, and I look forward to talking about it. Oh, wait! You skipped a. I'm just hold on. Let me just go through my show notes here. I just. Okay, just okay. He's skipping around, ladies and gentlemen. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared. But if it's time for big deal or big whoop, then maybe Michael, you can tell us about our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Okay, I really should take a breath before I do that. Our first Please. story: the mamas and the papas. You know, they're the musical act, or were the musical act. They once said, "You can't trust Mondays because that's when their baby left them." Okay. Monday, Monday. That's fair right. use, right? Yeah, okay, exactly. Especially since we're adding to it. Now, Bob Geldof, by the way, and the Boomtown Rats, you know, he said, I hate Mondays. This is where you sing the I hate Mondays. <laughs> I don't know how it goes. I've heard okay. it. But I just thought I should have sung all three. Uh, I don't know. It's it's a manic Monday here, and I just I can't keep my head straight. No, no, no. That's the bangles. You're, you're getting oh, it all mixed up. another manic Monday right. written by... Written by the Bangles. Um, no, uh, Prince. One of the rare songs. Well, no, they did some great covers, but that was written by Prince for them. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, you know uh, it, You know what? Just a little sidetrack here. Look up Prince at 11 years old. Apparently, somebody was going through some old archived footage uh, of a news, uh, of so, you know, some Minneapolis news station, and they were interviewing him at the age of 11 about something completely non-musical. It was just about like- school teachers on strike. Yeah. And it was, it's kind of like weird. You look at him, you're like, oh my God, it's Prince at age 11. Oh my God. It happens. Goodness. You can see, you can see me at about 10 or 11 being interviewed by, oh my gosh, what's her name? Uh, tennis player turned sportscaster. She does the Olympics. Chris Everett. No. Well, that's a good, that's a good guess. I know Chris. I mean, I don't know Chris Everett, but, but, uh, uh, 
She does Olympic coverage too. She's great. She's hilarious. And I'm completely blacked out. Peggy Fleming, Dorothy Hamill. I'm just going to start naming sports. Tennis players, tennis players, (laughs) tennis players. Um, uh, But I'm interviewed on USA television while they covered a women's tennis tournament about how to be a ball boy. A a good ball boy. Okay. Well, I'm not even going to touch that with a 10 foot pole, but I will tell you about Rachel Maddow of MSNBC who says, by the way, Unlike all those musical acts, Mondays are just fine for her. After coming back from a two-month hiatus to work on a film project, Maddow announced that starting in May, she would host an original show just one day a week on Mondays. She'll also weigh in on big events like the midterm elections. That's the latest change at the left-leaning channel. Brian Williams, by the way, said, goodbye. Steve, uh, Stephanie Rule. how do you pronounce her name? Is it Stephanie Ruley or Rule? It's not always easy to get a correct pronunciation. It's it's true. Yeah, well, she took over uh, Brian Williams' 11 p.m. slot. Ali Velshi filled in for Maddow, but to lower ratings. And Morning Joe expanded to four hours to fill in for Rule. Hey, we're available, guys. Come on. You know, we are around, preferably primetime, by the way, because you know you need at least one hour of entertainment news every single day in primetime. But before we audition, Michael, is all this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal for MSNBC, that's for darn sure, because she has been the linchpin of their schedule. Clearly, she is ready to you know, take it a little more easy or actually work a little harder and do all these other things, and they're going to need to fill that slot. You know, It's going to be big shoes to step into, and uh, it's going to be a loss for them, but she still be a big presence at the network, a big presence online. But obviously, in that prime time, you really want to have the biggest names you can. They're always well behind Fox News in a lot of metrics. This isn't going to help. And by the way, it's Mary Carrillo. (laughs) Mary Carrillo, great tennis player, a great TV broadcaster. She does a great job at the Olympics and uh, a lot of different sports. Uh, She's just a very good broadcaster in general and great, of course, covering tennis. She was a pro herself. And that's who interviewed me all those years ago on USA. I doubt the video is online, but maybe like Prince someday, someone will dig it up and go, there's little 10-year-old Michael looking like a dork. <laughs> and we can use it as your as your photo on the the website there. That's right, because I think your photo is from when you were eight. So now, uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, sadly, by the way, I did not attend Coachella this year, though I did watch it on streaming. Okay, the oh. festival just wrapped up its first weekend. Harry Styles kicked things off in style. See what I did there? The weekend ah. and Swedish House Mafia stepped in for Kanye West, aka Yi, and Megan the Stallion caused headaches for the Chinese. That's where this is going. Yes, that's the direction we're headed with this story. Fans behind the bamboo curtain were illegally streaming Miss Stallion's performance and censors had a very, very hard time keeping up. One poor person had a black bar to censor naughty images and frankly, her performance of WAP contained so many, the Hollywood Reporter said the black bar just like whizzed all over the place in desperation. (laughs) Fans also wrote out the lyrics with some changing a title of one song to Wet Ass Pushy. Uh, Pushy, yeah, instead of something else. Yeah, it's referencing a district in Shanghai that's in lockdown right now. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop, of course, but it's, uh, you know, some of the fans in China reportedly said, don't treat us like children. We are adults. We can watch this. And I I empathize with them. It's not easy 
uh, being in a country where you can't have access to everything uh, like that. It just seems silly, but uh, that's the country they live in. But anyway, Harry Styles, you know, he had a good week and a bad week. He did great at Coachella, got good reviews. Did you watch his performance? I did watch his performance. He, had, it, he brought out Shania Twain, in fact. And he did. He said she Shania taught him Twain. how to sing. When, yeah. Man, damn, I feel like a woman. He, he said I sang along to her as a kid and taught me how to sing. So that was kind of fun, giving a call back to her. I guess Stevie Nicks was busy. But he had been at number one with this new single, As It Was. Great song, by the way. It debuted at number one on the Hot 100. But only for one week. It's at number two now because Jack Harlow jumped into number one with his new song, First Class. Jack Harlow is a rapper and singer. He just appeared on the Grammys with Lil Nas X. That song also debuted at number one. Both of them doing that, the first two in 2022 to do that. So that's kind of cool to see. And thanks to our new listener, Natalie, who sent us a link to that story about Coachella. I had missed the China censorship thing. And again, when we talk about the censorship around the world, it does happen here, less so with movies and television, but it happens all over the world. And it's something Hollywood and the record labels and the book publishers have to deal with. Where do I print this book? That's an important decision. You, you can't get paper because of certain problems or you can't get something printed in a certain country because they won't do it. So you have to think about all these things when you do your business. That's why we talk about it. Some things happen in the U.S. We got bad things happening at the state level, but still, we're in a lot better shape than some other countries when it comes to that. But again, I don't know where I don't know how you got from Coachella to that at all, other than the China. You're bit. welcome. You're welcome. Now I have to say I watched a lot of the uh, of Coachella. You know, I, I've been there I, countless times, and I realized a couple things. One, lip syncing has become a rigueur. Okay, uh, you can just do it now, and nobody cares. Was Harry uh, Styles lip syncing? No, no, no. But uh, you know, certainly, if Billy, you've got I, a big, elaborate stage production and you're running around and dancing a lot, a lot of people can't pull that off. It's very hard to do. People do it on Broadway, by the way, though eight times a week. Broadway performers are the best. Yeah, and well, we would have Broadway numbers, but they come out on Tuesdays every week. We do our show and it goes up on Tuesday just when the new Broadway figures come out. It's very frustrating because I'd love to talk about Broadway more, but we can't always do it. Well, uh, I have to say that that uh, it was pretty good this year in terms of the way they, they streamed it. I, I've said the last time that they held at 2019 and I watched it, the streaming version, it was also very good. They have really, uh, as far as an industry goes, it seems like there are certain festivals that kind of get that that blue blue ribbon stamp of approval and Coachella has definitely become one of them it used to be like Bonnaroo in the US and then it kind of you know Coachella kind of took over uh and it's pretty remarkable what they're able to pull off and and besides the lip syncing uh the amount of production that goes into these things uh i mean these people are rehearsing for weeks and weeks and weeks for two shows, they do one on, uh, on weekend one and the other on weekend two, and then they'll never do it again. Danny Elfman performed. He like it was kind of weird. He's, he had a whole orchestra up there playing The Simpsons and Batman, and then he sings his Oingo Boingo stuff. It's just like the, the strangest. Uh, really setting a high bar for streaming. Yeah, it really is, and and it's setting a high bar for festivals. Watching Billie Eilish headline Saturday night, the big headliner. That's Saturday night is the big headline act. Uh, I realized as I was watching her when I first went to Coachella, she was like six months old. Okay, and <laughs> and uh, twenty years later, she is, she has like seven Grammys and an Oscar, 
and is headlining <laughs> Coachella. So I, I just find that uh, remarkable. Well, uh, that's music. And our next item is all about music as well, isn't it? Please and more music and more. Oh, yes, because you I know you're very happy because I this am. week, the Library of Congress added about two dozen albums, songs and historical recordings to its registry. These touchstones of our culture will be preserved and elevated by the Library of Congress for posterity. More importantly, Michael gets to geek out over everything from jazz pianist James P. Johnson's Harlem Strut from 1921 right up to Robin Williams guesting on the Mark Mayron podcast WTA. Wait, wait, wait. WTF? What? We can't. We we can't actually say the name of that. It's like uh, WAP. That's you know? not the joke. The joke is it's a podcast. Yeah. You can get podcasts preserved by the Library of Congress. That means Showbiz Sandbox could be preserved forever by the Library of Congress. Right to your congressman, people. This has got to happen. Yes, I don't understand. We we can't have Robin Williams, but who could we have on where they'd be like, we need to re- we need to re- preserve that recording. Well, I was going to get Donald Fagan, who doesn't do a lot of interviews, but he's only available next week, and you're busy. Oh, brother. Well, maybe we could get Linda question. Ronstadt. There, there, this is it's 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 a big deal, of course. You know, uh, I, I, that would be a big deal if we got preserved by the Library of Congress. And this announcement, of course, is not a big deal as such, but it's a very cool thing. I could easily do an hour talking about all the different music and and stuff that's on here and why they're significant. Linda Ronstadt, I've spoken about her a lot before. Her album of Mexican traditional music, traditional mariachi music. It's called Canciones de Mi Padre. That's on the Library of Congress list. I think she's one of the great talents of all time. Very few people have recorded such good music in so many different genres as Linda Ronstadt. Operetta, Mexican mariachi music, children's music, folk, country, rock, pop. She's just amazing. Other great albums are on the list, like Enter the Wu-Tang by the Wu-Tang Clan and Buena Vista Social Club and Alicia Keys' debut, Songs in A Minor, and Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time. I know our new listener, Natalie, who sent us in that story before. She's a big fan of Bonnie Raitt, by the way. Great singles are also on the list, like Nat King Cole's The Christmas Song, Moon River by Andy Williams, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Sperling's favorite, It's a Small World by the Disney Boys Choir or Children's Choir. It's a song, once you hear it, you never forget it. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, you can only, uh, when you go to the Library of Congress, you're only allowed to listen to that recording in the basement and only if it's flooded. So and in a soundproof room, so nobody else has to hear it. <laughs> exactly. uh, and, and, you know, and Journey's song, Don't Stop Believing. Journey is, you know, they've got some great, great singles. Their song, Separate Ways, that's in the trailer for the new season of Stranger Things on Netflix. They use that, that song really, really well. It just sounds spooky and awesome. I assume Separate Ways will be leaping up the charts as people watch that trailer and say, I want to hear that song. I have a sad story about living La Vida Loca, but I can't tell her right now. And it's not just music. It's also historical recordings like FDR's complete presidential speeches here in New York City, WNYC's radio coverage of 9-11 on the day it happened. Awful to be preserved in the Library of Congress for that reason, but doing emergency coverage is uh, you know, a great thing for journalists. They did a great job. And it's my, one of my personal favorites, it's the, the broadcast on a note of triumph by the great Norman Corwin. There have been Oscar-winning shorts and films made about Norman Corwin. He was a major talent in radio. This is a broadcast that came out on May 8th, 1945 on VE Day. They knew they were going to be, you know, in Europe. They knew they were going to have the VE Day. It was coming. They were about to, you know, wipe up with the Germans before they moved over to the Pacific. 
and they wanted to commemorate it. And they had Norman Corwin, who was the man at the time, and he created this special. He had all-star people contributing. It's almost like a radio play. You hear soldiers at the front lines. You speak to regular folk. And you can listen to this. We have a link to it in our show notes. It's about 50 minutes long. I would hope you could be as nuanced and thoughtful and you know, have a long perspective if you wrote this 50 years after VE Day. To do it in the midst of the war is just stunning. It's so nuanced and smart and and not vitriolic and not like, yeah, we won. It's just, it's an amazing, amazing accomplishment. So I hope if you have any interest, you check that out. You can find it on all sorts of uh, streaming services on A Note of Triumph, or you can look at our link for YouTube where it's found there. But it's it's really great. Norman Corwin is just a, was a, was a great talent. You know, speaking of streaming services, that is mm-hmm. our subject for Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Do you see that kind of intro once you breathe correctly? Much easier. Much easier. And, and worthy of preserving in the Library of Congress. That's true. Well, you know, really what we're talking about is uh, the streaming wars and and it's really all about originals. That's the message of a new study by Ampere Analysis. It claims that the five largest content commissioners in the U.S., that is the people behind some of the biggest streamers, okay, are approaching 50% originals in their online offerings. Those five are Discovery, Disney, or as I like to call them, the double D's, uh, Paramount, Warner Media, <laughs> and Comcast. Obviously, it was you know this this study was finished before Discovery swallowed up Warner Media and became Warner Media Discovery. In fact, Discovery was lagging behind others until it swiftly pivoted in 2021 in terms of new content. This spells trouble for you know Netflix, Amazon, you know the like, says Ampere, since they need to create more and more originals and spinoffs of hits just to keep up. Oh, and by the way, Paramount, yeah, they're way behind with only about a third of their online offerings being originals. They're way behind in a lot. I mean, did they even release? I think they released like four movies last year. In any case, uh, it, maybe it's kind of- Maybe we should be the head of the companies, you know? Maybe we should take over Paramount. That's a, We that's could do it for less than 20 million. Well, now, th- of course, I didn't have access to the full analysis. You got to pay a lot of money to do that. So I'm sorry if I- uh, criticize the, their work in a way that's not reflective of what they actually did. But I'm a little confused by it. I read this analysis, this story about it, and tried to find other stories about it. I don't understand how these are the five largest content commissioners in the U.S. Discovery, Disney, Paramount, Warner Media, and Comcast. Sure, but not Netflix or Amazon. They're not in the top five? Really? <laughs> so that's a little confusing to me. I'm not quite sure why those two were not or like maybe they're just sixth and seventh on the list, I guess, but that seems unlikely given that Netflix spent what, like 18, 17 billion dollars last year on content, though some of that is licensing content. And they're they're really talking, I think, about original content. But it's very interesting for them to claim that these people are all approaching like 50% originals in their online offerings. Now we know a lot of websites and cable channels and things launch with you know, stuff that they license and then they launch an original show and then they do more and more and more. So they got a lot of originals. That's how HBO did it. That's how, you know, AMC did it. That's how a lot of people do it. That's certainly how Netflix has done it. They've got a lot of originals, but I don't believe that just because these other people are catching up that this suddenly means, oh, now Netflix is screwed. It's like, no, they're creating originals and doing a really good job of it. I also don't think it's a problem if they suddenly don't have as much licensed content. 
They still do. They got a lot. But those people are clawing back the rights to some of their stuff. But there's other stuff. They're still happy to double license. They're happy to have it in their library and have Netflix pay them $100 million a year on it, right? So, you know, the Brady Bunch, if you want to show the Brady Bunch, they'll have it on their service, but they're probably willing to let you pay the money to have it on yours as well. So, you know, that's still I, a I don't have a business. service, but if I did, you know, I would uh, probably spend a billion or two to uh, make some original content based on what you're telling me here. Right. But but they're looking at all these people and seeing they're copying Netflix and saying, oh, that's big. That's a big problem for Netflix. Well, it's a big problem for everyone else who's trying to catch up to them and their 225 million subscribers. And Paramount, they say it's only at like one third of their stuff as originals. That might be because they started with such a big library in the first place. I mean, I'm not sure how they're measuring that or how they're deciding that. But I don't know. There's another study, which maybe you can identify with more. This one says people are overwhelmed. There's just too much to watch. And you they, think? Uh, they, Do you think? Yeah. But it doesn't mean that people are canceling their subscription. They're not saying, oh, there's too much to watch. I'm canceling it. They just feel like, oh, my God, there's so much to watch. So they're not canceling stuff a lot unless you're a member of Gen Z. They apparently are very quick to churn. They're very quick to say, I want to watch Ted Lasso. I've heard about it. I sign up for Apple TV Plus or whatever it's called. I watch those two seasons of Ted Lasso and then I cancel it. You know, they watch it in three days and they cancel it at the end of the month. And they go in and out of services all the time. They have some that they keep, of course, all the time, like I'm sure Netflix and perhaps HBO Max. And there are others that they cycle in and out of. And they're just like, well, I want to watch that for two months. And you know what? I'm doing that right now. I've currently subscribed to Mubi, which is a like criterion-like uh, art house cinema offerings, and to Showtime because I needed to watch Zola and one or two other things that were available on Showtime and nowhere else. And so I'm subscribing to them right now. As soon as I'm done watching what I want to watch, I will be canceling Showtime and movie. So I'm subscribing to them for like two months and then I'm out again until maybe eight or nine months later when they have enough stuff for me to watch again. So I'm doing that too. Are you doing that at all, Sperling? No, I'm more of the gym membership uh, variety of, of uh, you know, you, <laughs> you, you get you it, it for the one thing use it. and you never use it. And then you're like, oh, crap, I got to I got to cancel that. Uh, and then you start getting fat again. I mean, you start uh, realizing there's a lot of uh, stuff you haven't seen and then you you resubscribe. Uh, so you weigh, you weigh 80 pounds soaking wet. That is not true. 81 pounds. Everybody knows that. Um, <laughs> yeah, you are not fat. <laughs> Do not turn um, into Garen Carpenter on us. Yeah, no, no. But I know uh, your favorite. I know your really favorite channel is IMDb TV, where you watch Judy uh, Justice uh, uh, all no, the time. No, no, no. It's no longer IMDb TV, which is, by the way, a mouthful to say. And how they couldn't figure that out? Hey, let's make a let's make a a a channel, it's, a it's streaming from service IMDb. that is just letters. Just it's letters. stupid, but IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, is a very popular website. I use it literally every day. And maybe not everybody in the world knows it, but it definitely gets a lot of traffic. And they thought, well, we're launching a TV service. We're IMDb. We might as well, you know, use our name, right? It makes sense. It's just awful to say. So thank God they came up with a new name so we can just stop saying IMDbTV.com. And that's so hard. So I'm sure they came up with a great, catchy new name. Oh, yeah, because, you know, give it your right. Since it was so hard to say, I was like, oh, thank goodness they came up with a new name. What is it? Amazon Freebie? Okay, no, seriously, what's the real name? It's Amazon <laughs> Freebie. Freebie. So freebie. you don't have to pay for it. You can subscribe to Amazon Freebie for free. And it's just ads, of course. It's, it's what's it called? It's advertising, AVOD, advertising video on demand, right? Oh, yeah. And just ask Jason Kylar 
that's the correct pronunciation. We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> uh, Jason Kylar, uh, formerly of Warner Brothers uh, or Warner Media, I should say, uh, he thinks Avod is pretty much the wave of the future, and that Netflix will have to uh, start selling ads. Well, I think he's wrong that they have to start selling ads. What uh, if if you think they have a problem with two hundred twenty five million subscribers paying them twelve dollars a month on average all around the world? Uh, I'm not sure what that problem is. Uh, I imagine they need to slow down on their on their budget at some point, but they're building up a great war chest of a lot of great shows that people are going to want to watch for years to come. But I do believe, uh, yes, being able to subscribe to a service and get access to stuff without having to pay another monthly fee, even five or six dollars is very appealing because those suckers add up really quickly and I'm not interested anymore. I got too many as it is. So I agree with him about that. But Amazon Freebie, they've got Judy Justice. My mom doesn't like the new format. Why did they get rid of her bailiff? And they've got Alex Ryder, that uh, TV series that some kids might like. But they're not in the top 10 on streaming. Uh, Amazon is not covered, I don't think, by uh, nope. by the, the service. Right? They are able to cover, when you look at Nielsen and their ratings, the Nielsen is able to cover, uh, where's that list? There it is, Amazon Prime. So actually, Amazon Prime, Disney+, Plus, Hulu, Netflix and Apple. This is the streaming done in North America on smart TVs. So the stuff I watch on my laptop, not covered here, but it does give us a snapshot at what is happening in the streaming world. And that's how we'll end up this section. We've got a top 10 list. And in the weeks to come, now that I have access to those numbers, which was available online for free, <laughs> it's not as good as I like. Uh, you can't go back and forth. You can't look at last week's numbers. You can only look at the current week's numbers. But at least it's easy to copy and paste and look at it uh, at your leisure. So I can save them in the past weeks and then three weeks from now, I'll be able to compare how shows are tracking. Anyway, the overall stuff, we've got 10 movies in the top 10 overall. We've got three movies, two, ori two of them are originals. We've got three original TV series and four acquired. That makes sense. 40% is acquired and 60% are originals or no, 50%. 50% are originals and 50% are acquired. Kind of like the movies. study you just mentioned. Just to Yeah, exactly. 50% are acquired, 50% are original. At the top is Disney Pixar's Turning Red. That just debuted on March 11th. This is for the week March 14th through March 20th. We're always about a month behind. Turning Red was number one with 1.6 billion minutes. I have no idea what they did last week, but next week I'll be able to tell you what they did this week. At number two is The Adam Project. That's on Netflix, and that had 1.3 billion minutes of viewing. Then there's a TV series, The Last Kingdom. That dropped the final season on March 9th, based on the Bernard Cornwell novels. Uh, there are 46 episodes in all, but the final season dropped uh, like one week earlier. And now this week, 1.3 billion minutes. That's the Billion Dollar Club, the top three projects, all attracted over 1 billion minutes of viewing for each property. Then there's Disney's Encanto at number four, finally down from number one in the uh, top movie list. And then acquired shows like NCIS, Coco Melon, Good Girls, that NBC crime drama starring uh, Christina Hendricks of Mad Men and Criminal Minds. And the three original series that are in the mix are, uh, or one of them is The Last Kingdom, which is a co-production between Netflix and the BBC. Another is Bad Vegan, Fame, Fraud, and Fugitives. That dropped on March 16th. This is nutty. It is a a four-part, I think, documentary series about a vegan restaurateur who illegally funneled money to her husband so he could pay a deity, a god, to give them immortality. That makes okay. me want to watch it. It's a documentary. It's not a series. It's not made up. It's a documentary. And I go, 
well, okay, I'm interested. By the way, can you get immortality? Is that possible? <laughs> I mean, so that's weird. And then Inventing Anna, which has been a big hit on Netflix as well, that's also in the mix in the top 10. So very cool to see. Um, that's great to have the chart. Great to know what's happening. And uh, I, I die a little bit every week when I don't have access to that information. Oh, well, now you don't have to die. So we can just skip right over our obituaries. Oh, I know you love them. There's a lot of them. This just came in, by the way. DJ K. Slay died at the age of 55. Uh, he had a long battle with COVID. Uh, he was known as a producer, a label exec, a DJ, and an artist behind a lot of mixtapes and the all-star Street Sweeper albums. He had lots of celebrity guests joining him on those. 55 years old. Very sad. Did you ever see the French actor Michel Bouquet? I'm sure you saw uh, like Toto the Hero, didn't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's a great French actor. He died at the age of 96. He did everything from narrating Elaine Renee's Night know, and Fog documentary, Night and Fog, about the Holocaust, uh, just, a, just a, a crushing 40 minutes. And a lot of great performances and films by Truffaut, like The Bride Wore Black and Mississippi Mermaid, to How to, I Killed My Father and my favorite, Toto the Hero. He had to leave boarding school at 15 when his dad became a prisoner of war during World War II. Didn't they still get paid? Anyway, he had to leave school and go to work and did all these sort of jobs uh, to help support the family until he, his mom, returned to Paris during the war, still occupied. But his mom loved the theater, and that was that. She took him to the theater, he fell in love, and he made his stage debut at 19 while the war still raged. Paris was liberated on August 25th, 1944. I'm not sure uh, if... Paris might not have even been liberated when he first appeared on stage in a play. So that's kind of cool. A great, long, long career. Well, we have a lot of obituaries here. I think, you know, certainly, look. You hate uh, them. You hate them. You hate well, dead I just, people. No, no, you, I don't. You don't see Yeah, dead I hate people. dead people, you but they never hold it against people. me. They never hold right. it against me. I'll urge you to go check out our, our, our obit on Specialty Records head Art Roop or Rupee. He died at the age of 104. He founded Specialty Records. He brought Little Richard to fame. He and Little Richard helped create rock and roll. Uh, he did a lot of other cool stuff. And as far as I can tell, he seems like he was one of the good guys. I'm sure he took more than his fair share of royalties and money but I don't read any stories about him screwing people over. He had Little Richard. He had not. He invested in a label that had an early Nat King Cole and Frankie Lane. He had uh, the Soul Stirrers, which, of course, uh, launched Sam Cooke into great success. Not one of his better moments, right? He had Sam. He paid Sam Cooke to record some solo stuff from the Soul Stirrers, some pop stuff. He listened to them, didn't really like them, released one. It flopped, and he's like, you can take that stuff elsewhere. Sam Cooke did, and immediately hit the number one charts with You Send Me. His first great single, You Send Me, and uh, you know, big, big solo career, not on specialty records. But are you a fan of Gilbert, Gilbert Gottfried? You know, sometimes I thought, you know, some of his stuff was good. He was a good character. Why not? Why not? Yeah, I mean, uh, some of it was good. Some of it wasn't, you know, good character. Yeah. Well, he was a, he's a, an abrasive personality on stage. He had, a, he had a nasal voice, squinty eyes. He was certainly memorable. He did a lot of voice work, ranging from the parrot Iago in the classic Disney film Aladdin to the duck in the Aflac commercials. That was him for many years saying, Aflac! That was Gilbert Gottfried until he got in trouble. Now, when kids weren't giggling at his voice, adults were laughing at his body material such as the joke at the heart of the documentary film The Aristocrats. If you're easily offended, 
don't watch the aristocrats. He often appeared on late night, did Howard Stern. He had his own, he has his own podcast called the amazing colossal podcast, which people like, and he was one of the first standups to do a joke about nine 11. Uh, that's what led him to do in public. The joke that's at the heart of the aristocrats, which is a joke that comics only told each other. They almost never did it on stage. And Gottfried, when people said they were offended by nine, his nine 11 joke said, Oh really? And launched into that one, which is, horrifically offensive. He never thought it was too soon to tell any joke, whether you liked him or not. He certainly was a trailblazer and paid the price. He lost his Aflac job for making jokes about the tsunami in Japan, like almost as it happened. He lost other work because of the 9-11 joke and things that he did there. You know, he really walked the walk. So whatever his talent or skills, the guy, you know, stuck to his guns. Now, you might not know the name Liz Sheridan, but you certainly know her if you've ever watched Seinfeld because... She was Seinfeld's mother. That's right. She, she had a long career. She had a recurring role on ALF. I once interviewed ALF, by the way. ALF, yes, the, the character from the sitcom ALF. I interviewed the alien ALF. And she once dated James Dean long enough. They had a relationship to write a book about it. And that might have been her obit until she got to be Jerry's mom on Seinfeld. And she loved him. You know, she just thought he was the best and didn't everybody love him. Deadline had this amusing quote. When her character, Helen, was told someone didn't like Jerry... She said she just couldn't believe it. And he said, Ma, I know this may be hard for you to understand, but I am sure there are many people in the world who do not like me. And she said, no, it's not true. You're a wonderful, wonderful boy. Everybody likes you. It's impossible not to like you. Impossible. I wish my mom would talk about me like that. <laughs> well, and finally, I casting director Jay Bender died at the age of 71. He's a legend in the theater world. He also worked on film and TV, but he cast over 100 theatrical shows on Broadway. And, you know, it's often the director of a film or stage play or TV show who gets all the credit for discovering someone almost Every single time, it's really the casting director who puts that person in front of them, who has been championing this person and finds the right role for them and says, you've got to use this person. He did that time and time again. He did everything on Broadway from uh, Neil Simon for like 20 years, practically worked on Neil Simon. He did uh, The Lion King, the original Beauty and the Beast, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. And he worked on the TV show. He wasn't the official casting director, but he worked on I'll Fly Away, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. And finally, he founded and oversaw Encores, an institution off-Broadway. It's not off-Broadway, but it's a show that people love in the theater world. They have launched many shows to Broadway from there, including his casting of the revival of Chicago, which is still on Broadway today. So a legend in the casting director world and the theater world. So we'll miss Jay Bender. But you won't miss our listener email to dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com because I'm about to read you some of them. First, the first one, first one is uh, from Tom Phillips. He writes, Tom Phillips here. Uh, and this is to you, Michael, I guess. We knew each other when I was at Paramount's New York publicity office and we overlapped for a season or two as IRA voters. Yeah, Ira is the is the movie group that get my get together every year and vote on the best films of the year. I, that's right. I I knew Tom. I w I couldn't call him a friend, unfortunately, but he's a a very nice guy, and I worked with him professionally sometimes at Paramount when I was a freelancer. And uh, I had I, I'm I'm tickled pink that he listens to the show, or at least did this week. Uh, first of all, you say that when you were a freelancer, as opposed to being on staff now. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so he says, my comment is in reference to you saying in the latest podcast that you never heard a gay man talk about Sam Elliott. Clearly, you are too young. 
Sam Elliott was very much an it boy for gay men in the 1970s after his film Lifeguard came out in 1976. Elliott's <laughs> appearance then and since exemplified the clone look of hypermasculinity, which was prevalent and popular in the 70s and still and 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 still from the film featuring oh stills from the film featuring him in a red speedo appeared in many gay publications like After Dark. Google it. It was common for gay men of the time to crush over Sam Elliott, something I'm sure he knew very well. This was a major reason I found his original comments so egregious and ungrateful since he has always had a bit of a, a following among gay men of a certain age. So his mea culpa is welcome. I listen to your podcast every week and enjoy it thoroughly. Kudos to you and Sperling, Tom Phillips. Oh, that's 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 awesome. That's great. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, <laughs> so, of course, I immediately Googled this, and I, the fact checker in me must speak up. I, I don't think it's a red Speedo. I think it's red trunks. Maybe they're Speedo trunks, but they look like just red trunks, almost like they're swim trunks, but they almost look like gym shorts that you might wear. But there he is, looking very hairy-chested and manly and sexy in, in, in Lifeguard from 1970, that 1970 film. Uh, I couldn't see how much the movie made. It didn't get good reviews, but it was popular for some people, I guess. And, well, here, here's uh, I, the thing. I, you know, I stand corrected. <laughs> now, you know, no matter when you're talking about Sam Elliott, he looks the same always. He always looks the same. Well, no. <laughs> if you look at this in 90, you can say, okay, I can see people. If I look at him today, I go, really? He's got to give you a button. No, you look at him in, in Lifeguard and you go, okay, I can see it. Not my speed, but there you go. So thank you so much for writing it. And we do have a link to the red trunks in our show notes if you can't be bothered to Google it yourself. Our other letter is from Raul Burial. Uh, he says, hi, Sproul and Michael. By the it's, way, Raul it's, it's pronounced Raul Burial. Burial. Yes. Bloody hell, I'm doing terrible today. Of course, it's a role from the Streaming Into the Void podcast, which if you're not listening to, you should. Just some notes on episode 580. First, in regard to AT&T stake in the new Warner Brothers Discovery, well, technically AT&T has spun off its assets and no longer has any stake whatsoever in Warner Disco. <laughs> I like that he shortened it to Warner Disco instead of Warner Discovery. AT&T shareholders will soon get additional stock in the new company, which is complicated and annoying and is a link to a story in MarketWatch about that. So that's uh, good to note. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, that was a mistake on our part. In regard to Jason Kylar, not Kylar, Jason Kylar, a few things. And he goes in to say, first, we got to stop making the mistake of correlating Christopher Nolan's disgruntled behavior to Kylar's day and date release strategy on movies during the pandemic. So this is Raul's take on, he says, look, Tenet was sent to theaters before streaming. Nolan still feels he was sandbagged by repeated postponements of his movie and what he felt was a less than full-throated promotional campaign once the movie actually hit theaters in late 2020. Personally, I don't think that's fair. But of course, what actually hurt Tenet, says Royal, was one, the pandemic, and two, it's a bad movie. It's a terrible movie. Wonder Woman 1984 in December 2020 was Warner Brothers' first day-and-date movie. Tenet's failure at the box office basically forced Warner Brothers' hand. That was followed by the full 2021 slate announcement. There's a number of reasons why this announcement was made and why it was made abruptly with so few people knowing about it. The last part is obvious. The more people you tell, the more likely it gets leaked and the more hedging and postponements you have to make. I, I disagree with that. When you're dealing with talent, you have to talk to them first. The first part is because the studio didn't necessarily have a strong slate in 2021. 
there's a general consensus now that many of these people with profit participation got more money because they were paid off to appease them than if their movies had gone to theaters any other time. Think Denzel Washington in The Little Things or even Keanu Reeves in The Matrix Resurrections. That movie was going to bomb regardless. And I assure you, other studios have followed suit on day and date releases. Even setting aside Disney, who exists in their own realm, I think it's called the Magic Kingdom, by the way, Universal released <laughs> Halloween, Boss Baby 2, and Marry Me, Day and Date, and no one batted an eye. That's true. Kylar didn't make, <laughs> didn't make an arbitrary decision on the day and date release. There's an inherent cost to holding back a movie from release. You got borrowed money, you got to pay interest, et cetera. And the pandemic guaranteed that there wasn't going to be an audience in theaters. But I'm sure the Warner accountants also have a formula that tells them how much a subscriber to HBO Max is worth versus a ticket at the box office. I don't know that formula yet, but you certainly don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, let's just shift our entire corporate strategy and see what happens. That is what they did. But anyway, believe me, Kylar is a very popular guy in Hollywood right now. He's built up a lot of capital as he's played the martyr at the hands of Discovery. I used to think he was going to end up at some equity firm or working with Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, which wouldn't be a bad move. But now I think he's got some bigger aspirations. There might be a CEO job opening up in 10 to 11 months. He'd be perfect for. Hmm, who's he referring to? Remember that it's Kylar's hope. Maybe he's thinking Disney. Remember that it's Kylar's Hulu memo that basically laid out the roadmap for what is Hollywood today. Before we get to his last comments, what do you think, Sperling? I think obviously there's he a has lot a to unpack take. there. There's a lot and to David, unpack. And, and Kylar would say, You're right. I did great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as far as Christopher Nolan goes, I would say the latter is true. He th that when that movie came out, everybody was saying, Where is the marketing campaign for this? I mean, are you expecting just everybody to know that it's coming out because the news is covering it? There was hardly any advertising. There was there was hardly a marketing camp. That said, it was, quote unquote, unprecedented times where how do you market during a pandemic? And do you like ask I, I would like to see the ad budget. I don't know if that's true. That's just the impression you had. I certainly knew it was coming out. I saw it at a drive-in. I know he's certainly right that that is one of many problems Christopher Nolan had with uh, Kylar and Warner Brothers. But he also, on the, the day of the announcement of Day and Date, he did publicly say a once great studio has now become a joke. You know, he was yes, very he unhappy about the Day and Date. His whole reason for wanting support for the movie was to help rescue exhibition and keep people going to the movie theaters. That wasn't just, you know, peevishness over his own movie. He really felt that the movie going experience is paramount and that that Warner Brothers was undercutting it unnecessarily by announcing way in advance. None of our movies are going to be in theaters except also on HBO Max on the same day. I, I think also that uh, when you when you start looking at, at Kylar's day and date thing. Yeah, I mean, he Kylar has said the reason that he didn't uh, tell anybody ahead of time was specifically for what Roll was saying. He knew that if Bollocks. he said something, he said something, Bollocks. it would get out. That's okay if it leaks out. You don't just ignore the celebrities and the stars and well, the major also, talent that you have a working relationship with. That's a stupid reason to do it. Well, I don't want anyone to know. So what if it, it word gets well, out about Wonder Woman 1984 or something else? If it does, you deal with Wonder it. Woman yeah. 1984 was ahead of that that announcement. But right, that's or, or whatever. Right. I'm saying whatever happens with any movie. And again, I don't disagree with the strategy. I disagree with the way it was done. Not reaching out to talent. I don't think that's a good justification. But Certainly, Raul agrees that it was a great decision in hindsight. The celebrities maybe are happy because they had dogs of a movie and they got more money. So maybe they were a little miffed, but now they're like, well, I got my $40 million. I don't feel so bad anymore. So he makes, he makes a good argument. And you know what? 
Uh, I didn't think that Kylar was terrible in general. Uh, he was he was right on Hulu, but I think the Hulu memo is about pivoting away from exhibition. It uh, it is about to a degree moving away from you know seeing exhibition as paramount. Uh, bad pun as the most important thing that leads to everything else. So uh, I'm not sure that's the smartest thing, but a lot of people agree with him. He's right that there's a case to be made, and if we see him heading up Disney or somebody else in 10 or 11 months, we'll know that his reputation is intact and that anybody who hires him agrees that he can have a good relationship with celebrities and talent even after what happened on the day and day. Back to well, his letters, you know, his last- Well, you know, the other thing I would point out is the reason that he didn't uh, tell people, not only the leakage problem, he didn't want somebody, because it would definitely leak, because some filmmaker or some agent would basically say, I know how to stop this. We're going to let the press know there will be a huge industry outcry and Kyler will have to change his mind. He was brought in specifically to pump up HBO Max. He did that to some extent. H- how much? Who knows? And at what cost? Well, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in production cost. Uh, you know, the reality is in terms of the the loans uh, and interest being paid back. Hey, the way those those loans were given and the way those loans were were uh, you know the math Structured. on those. Yeah, you ha- you needed box office. So by by streaming them day and date, uh, you needed something. I mean, it, it just didn't make sense. Although you did stop paying that interest, that is for sure. Well, no, that's that's definitely an issue that you know you can't sit on a movie for three, four years. It does cost you money every month. We we know that, and we know it was extraordinary times, and we know he could have made that same announcement, but done it in concert with people and made them feel part of the decision making process and not built unnecessary ill will. And still, I I have to think. It didn't pump up HBO. I don't think anybody's, oh my God, eight, nine months from now, Dune's going to be on HBO Max. I have to buy it. I don't think anybody would have cared if Dune uh, went to theaters first and then came to HBO Max versus day and day. I don't think a single person bought HBO Max because they knew they wouldn't have to go to a movie theater to see Dune. You know, the day it was available because they knew they'd be able to see it eventually on HBO Max. You could have promoted HBO Max with every single one of those films that they were going to be coming to HBO Max, whether or not they played theaters. And you didn't have to undercut exhibitors in the midst of a pandemic after they're reeling and say, you're absolutely not getting anything, you know, exclusive from us. You know, that's just, that's just bad. We always think the box office drives everything in terms of movies. And we just think it's so important. It was $50 billion worldwide two minutes ago. And people act like, oh, whatever. It'll never come back. Well, it was there in 2019. You know, that's not so long ago. People have not given up the habit of going to the movies. But he makes some great points. And we look forward to seeing what happens to uh, Mr. Kylar. Maybe he'll come on the show. Finally, says, well, lastly, Michael, bookmark this page. Nielsen.com slash US slash EN slash top 10. The link is in our show notes. You'll never complain about not finding the Nielsen ratings again. And yes, Michael and Sperling, you're both right. While these numbers are flawed on a number of fronts, it's also, or rather, I would say not flawed, but incomplete, perhaps. It's also the only consistent metric, which means that while not necessarily accurate, it shows longitudinal patterns. Keep up the good work, guys. I especially like when you touch on subjects that are not in my wheelhouse, like Broadway or the music industry. Forgive my nitpicking on the stuff that is in my wheelhouse. I assure you, I'm being pedantic. It's all good, Raul. Raul Burial. How do you say it? Raul Burial. Streaming into the void. 
That's the end of our, that's the end of our letters, and that's the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that that's that's Raul's podcast, and uh, this is our podcast. You can subscribe to it in <laughs> iTunes, the Google Play Store. Oh God, it's not the Google Play Store; it's the Google Podcast Store. I've got to change that in our notes. Uh, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can usually find us. And if you can't, please do let us know. You can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's a D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Uh, we're on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Now, all of that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to subscribe to us. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz can be found online, and every week he's got a new and exciting website for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's redspeedo.com. Actually, that's actually a very good play by uh, the playwright Lucas Hanaf. Um, oh, uh, so uh, uh, great it's, playwright! It's not just Red Speedos. Yeah, oh, he's a terrific playwright. He, he absolutely is. I think I just mispronounced his name just to finish no, no, off no, the you show pronounced the it way correctly. I began. Yeah, yeah, you pronounced it correctly. Um, but uh, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's uh, coverage of the entertainment industry on redspeedo.com, uh, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated? Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until two weeks from now, play nice. Uh-huh.